after or in Christ alone, uh, it's hard to preach, but then I thought it's actually easier to preach. Uh, what a powerful hymn that is that should motivate us as we walk through this passage. Let me pray for us, and then we will. Father, we thank you for Philippians 3, 3 this whole letter, and for the way that it conforms us to Christ, shows us Christ, and we pray that we would run after him, that we would seize the prize because he has taken hold of us when we trust in him. Father, by your spirit, invigorate our efforts, but help us to know that it was ultimately the effort, the self-offering of Christ that has made us your people. In his name we pray, amen. So when I was a kid, um, I have and had fun memory, memories of running the 70-yard dash and the 200-yard relays and other races. And I looked forward to straining ahead and usually being the first one to hit the blue tape at the end of the race. Now, I'm going to come back to that story. I'm not ultimately the hero of my own illustration this morning. <laughs> And, and Paul uses this imagery of running a race to help us to capture his core concern and his passion. Here in our passage, but he's been saying it really all throughout the letter, he is pressing toward the goal. The Greek word is telos, the aim, the end, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he is running toward. And as we begin to look at this passage, we need to start by asking ourselves, to what are we aspiring in our lives? What is driving us? What are we running after? Perhaps it's uh, athletic achievement or academic achievement. It might be fixing up your house or buying a house or think in this topsy-turvy economy that we're living in, financial security is, is probably on all of our minds. Perhaps your aspiration is to find a spouse or to have a stronger marriage with the spouse that you already have. Perhaps it's to have a healthy uh, and happy family. These are all worthy goals to be sure, friends. But Christ, Paul says, is far more worthwhile and valuable than all of these things put together. You can sense it from him even as you read his logic. And so Paul says that we are to run like the prize is ours, that we have it already, and yet it is not yet, meaning it is still in front of us. Verse 12, he says, not that I've already reached the goal or that I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Now here Paul, as he's talking about reaching for this goal and, and saying he hasn't yet achieved it, he's referring there to the previous verses, uh, many of which that we, we looked at last week, but a few that we didn't focus on is, is Paul says that he wants to be conformed to Christ's resurrection, to share in his resurrection power, but he knows that first, he has to share in Christ's sufferings. Now the resurrection is central to this entire 
letter, and it is to all of Paul's writings. It's central in the New Testament. It needs to be a core concern in our lives. A few months ago, my 29-year-old son, Miles, who lives in Boise with his wife and two kids and a big dog, (laughs) and he just started a commercial construction company, so he has a lot going on. He reached out to me and he said, Dad, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, but I am struggling with believing in the resurrection. And I want to have my faith in the resurrection, my understanding of it built up. He then said he had been listening to a series of talks by Tim Keller, and he said, Tim Keller's always referring to N.T. Wright on the resurrection. What do you think about you and I reading N.T. Wright's book, The Victory of the Son of God? And I thought, well, that'd be great. It's 800 pages, (laughs) so let's take two years, (laughs) maybe three. He's really busy and I have a lot going on. So let's get on Zoom once a month. And we've done that now two times. And it's so powerful. And one of the things, one of the main arguments that Wright makes as we think of the resurrection is it's unlike anything in ancient history. You'll often hear people say, well, the resurrection is just kind of the story that emerged out of an ancient a superstitious worldview, he spends a lot of time to say, no, this is not like Homer's myths or Plato's views of the afterlife. And it's not ultimately what the Jews thought that resurrection would happen at the end of history in a general way. No, Wright says, rightly, (laughs) that this is one man rising in the middle of history. And so Wright says, I quote him, We as people could cope, the world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside of his disciples' minds and hearts. But the world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of this old one. Amen. But the important thing for Miles and for me to know as we go through it, and for all of us, is it's not simply that the resurrection happened as a historical fact that has revolutionized the entire world and is inexplicable if you try to reduce it to a mere human phenomenon. It is God entering history, but we can't simply say that it happened. Paul is saying here what it means is central to its reality. It is Christ's vindication at the right hand of God, he said in Philippians 2. It is this glorious invasion of new life into death. It is God promising, as we'll see at the end of our passage today, new bodies at the consummation, but now it is new life and a new way of living and relating in our union with Christ. So friends, Paul passionately pursues Jesus. He wants to be acquainted with his sufferings in a world that pushes back against Jesus and says, this is absurd. You Christians are fools. We suffer with Christ in our conformity to the cross, but we have the hope of the power of the resurrection that changes us now 
And with that power and with that conformity to the cross, Paul has been saying, we must not seek only our own interests, but also the interests of others. I've had to think about that in practical ways this week. This passage has hit home. You see, in the resurrection, in our union with Christ, we have power to die to self and to live for God and to live for each other, to serve others. And so, verse 12 in our passage, again, brothers and sisters, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I press on is to make it my own because Jesus already made me his own. What a beautiful statement for Reformation Sunday. I aspire to make Christ fully my own. Yes, he's mine, but I want to know more of him. But I do this because he has fully made me his own. We're going to look at three themes as we walk through this passage. And they're sequential in terms of sort of back, present, and forward. Paul says that we're to forget what lies behind us. Second, we're to focus on what lies ahead, but as part of that, we are defined by our upward calling. So think behind, forward, upward. First, forgetting what lies behind. We saw last week that Paul, as he goes through this letter, he evaluates his religious past, all of his great and impressive pedigree, the fact that he was a strict keeper of the law, at least Jewish rites and rituals that defines uh, Jewish people. He talks about all the observance of the law and he said, compared to knowing Christ, it is rubbish, it is a, it is a trash heap. He's looking at his life in the past and he is saying human attempts to be in a right relationship with God Based upon our goodness, those attempts aren't good. Why? Because they turn us in on ourselves. They focus then on our efforts and our pride and our accomplishments instead of God's grace, as Gretchen said at the very beginning of the service, grace alone. And this kind of self-salvation project that Paul has been critiquing, you know what it does? It causes us, friends, to hide our insecurities. I have them. Oh boy, if you only knew. <laughs> Cause us to hide our failures. And then we overcompensate to show that we measure up when we fear that we don't. And so we get on this sort of treadmill of a life of merit building merit building. We strive to be justified. We seek to be right with God, right with ourselves and others, to be all right based on what we do. Again, we can take it back to academic achievement or the grades that our kids get in high school or the clubs that they're in and the recognition they get and the schools they get into. It can be making sure our, our families are healthy and our kids are um, you know, presenting a good face out to the world. I asked Liz yesterday, actually, I said, how would you as a mom say that it's easy to follow what Paul is criticizing here? The old way of justifying ourselves by what we do in the life of merit building. 
She said, well, we want to be excellent at our jobs. We want to be good moms. We want our children to listen, to care, to obey. And we can so easily base our identity on these things. Now, let me take you back to the uh, racing uh, story at the beginning. Uh, I said I was a fast kid, and I was. Uh, I actually was mentioned in the local newspapers. I think at one time, the LA Times, uh, our team was. Uh, 20 schools or so involved from Glendale and Burbank in these races. I got blue ribbons, you know, I got some acclaim for it. But I have to admit, I was in elementary school. <laughs> and um, that athletic glory that gave me an identity, a sense of achievement that I could, I could beat anyone, <laughs> that glory began to fade somewhere in middle school as friends and others, competitors, caught up to me and even surpassed me. I didn't hit the tape first as much as when I was in fourth grade. Uh, sometimes people would say, you just had unrealized potential, right? And so all throughout our lives, we can define ourselves not only by what we've done, being first place, but also then we get discouraged when we're no longer in first place. For some of you, that's gonna come later in life, but we're all gonna have those moments. We, when we follow Paul's old way of defining ourselves, a life of merit building, we can't help but compare ourselves to others, right? There's a satire site that had a great headline that said, everyone in household convinced they're the ones who have taken out the trash bins. <laughs> and I think that happens in every family. I did it. No, I did it. We compare. And so Paul looks back at all the things he achieved, and he says that knowing Christ far surpasses all of that. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, I have been found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness, a goodness that comes from God, that depends on faith, so that what is true of Jesus has become true of me. That phrase sums up in so many ways the Reformation. And so what Paul is saying to you and me, friends, is stop litigating your past. We come into these places in worship and we have, we have scars from what we have done to others, from what others have done and said to us. And we are so often defined not only by our past successes, but by our failures. And Paul is not saying to be in denial about these things, but he's saying leave them at the cross. Take your merit building and put it at the foot of the cross. Take your achievements and your failures and put your trophies and your scars there at the cross. You see, we renew, or rather receive, a right and renewed relationship with God by His grace, not by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us. The writer A.W. Tozer said, the only sin that Jesus ever had was ours. The only righteousness that we can ever have is His. And that's what Paul is trying to drill home here. Put your past behind you by leaving it at the cross. 
We don't look back and constantly litigate our past. Jesus has dealt with it. So stop with the worldly measuring. John Calvin said, Paul does not think of what he has been or of what he has done, but he simply runs toward the appointed goal with outstretched arms. And what is the goal? What is the prize? It is Christ and knowing Him. And so now we focus on what is ahead. Paul says, I press on to make it my own. I reach out for what lies ahead because Jesus Christ, and I'm returning here to a phrase that we heard in the beginning, Jesus Christ has already made me His own. You see, dear friends, Christianity is not that you've apprehended something, but rather another has apprehended you. You and I seize this because Christ has seized us. We strive to attain what Paul is talking about because the perfect one has already obtained us. And so we press on to know and to make it our own. Because we have been owned. You know, we don't like the phrase, you've been owned. Oh, but when it comes to Jesus, I have been owned. And you have been owned. So again, what are you aspiring to? You know, I, I heard a preacher recently, and he rightly mentioned bucket lists. And in our frenetic, frantic culture to, to experience all things, we've, we've added so many things to our bucket list. You know, you want to go see the Nor Northern Lights or, uh, I don't know, the Victorian Falls or whatever. There are all these different things you want to do and to go and see. And again, that can be wonderful, but Paul says, make pursuing Christ your main aim. I've said it often that health is something that I pursue. And uh, Liz actually just sent out a prayer request this morning. I didn't know she was going to send it before worship. Um, but she let a, the, you as a congregation know a few things about what's going on, an update with my health. And um, I will say that uh, with failing kidneys, I'm at 15%. It looks like I may need a transplant this summer. Um, and so with this passage in mind, uh, I have the goal even more intensely to pursue physical health. Uh, Liz mentioned that I got the Lance Armstrong shot uh, on Wednesday, and that should increase my hemoglobin, which should increase my oxygen and my energy level, and I'm feeling that already, so if I'm talking a little faster, that is why. Uh, the doctors have all let me know it's the Lam Lance Armstrong shot, but for you, it's legal. <laughs> it's not called doping. Um, and so even this morning, as I thought about visiting with my doctor and talking to UCLA this week and all that we're going through, I, I thought I am fired up about tracking fitness with renewed vigor and, and taking nutrition and diet more seriously. And and going after ministry here with you with more vigor in the coming months. But with all of that, and I, I thought it in my office right before the service, my greatest pursuit must be, and, and we help each other, friends, in this endeavor, it must be acquaintance with Christ 
and a deeper encounter of Him. We take hold of the prize that has taken hold of us. The prize is to know the love of Christ, which is, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, too great to know. Yet we ask the Spirit to help us to grasp this love that is so wide and high and deep. One writer brilliant, beautifully said, for Paul, the goal is that he might fully comprehend the meaning and the majesty of this magnificent person. Because as we will sing during communion, we have been captivated by the beauty of Jesus. Now friends, we haven't yet reached this goal, and in the heart of our passage, Paul says something very important to all of us. He affirms the incompleteness of his own journey toward the final day. He's not yet there. In verse 12, let me take you back to that. He says, I'm not yet perfect. Now the Greek word is related there to tell us. Goal. The word is actually to tell I. I have not reached that perfect state. But then he states paradoxically that only those who understand their lack of perfection, to tell it's only those who understand who have actually reached spiritual maturity. And then he there uses the word tell us. In other words, if you are mature, you know that you have so much maturing to do. The mature person knows their weaknesses, their tendencies to slacken in their pursuit of Jesus. We don't always press on with vigor. And friends, here in worship, we do not have to cover up our inadequacies, our fears, our insecurities, our doubts about the resurrection and whether it's true. We bring it all to Christ and we help each other in this pursuit. And that then makes us mature, not pretending, but being real. Martin Luther, another great reformer, put it this way, through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. And so we've looked at not looking behind us, looking forward. Now we'll close with defined by our upward calling. Brothers and sisters, we know that we are living in a time when our culture is obsessed with identity and looking to all these different markers, and some of them very unbiblical. Let's look at your, your country, your, your race or ethnicity, your sexual desires, your political affiliation. That's where you find your identity. One Christian writer said, but the strange thing is that the more identities we seem to collect, the less we are sure about who we even are. But Paul tells us who we are. We are Christ's. And God defines us and gives us an identity that is upward. Look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore we press forward while following Christ. But as we do so, there's a portion here in our passage where Paul says, as we're running the race, we 
to use the language of Hebrews 12, we have all of these down drags that are pulling us back. Temptations that are causing us to look to the side and to look back. Paul writes in verse 19 of the enemies of Christ, he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame because their minds are set on earthly things. Now, I had to ask the hard question as a food lover this week, is he actually talking about gluttony? (laughs) And I kept trying to work around it. Well, now, maybe that's just a metaphor. (laughs) Well, he's talking about our obsession with earthly things. God gives us the things of this world to enjoy, but we are not to set our minds on those things to such a degree that they pull us away from our heavenly calling. There's no formula for knowing when we've crossed the line and enjoying the things of this world, but God needs to give us wisdom. You see, worldly indulgences at the expense of the kingdom, that's a dangerous thing. And so we must practice discernment in how we enjoy the things of this world. Some one writer said, easy street is a dead-end street. And pursuing Christ requires effort. And so Paul here is warning us against the underlying sin of pandering to self. One writer says that the mind astray from God is the most potent of all forces for spiritual disaster. And so he's warning those early Christians and us that instead of fixing our minds on the things that would draw us away from Jesus, we must pay attention to and hear our upward calling. Now, why does Paul use upward? Who's up? Well, at the end of Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and so he is there. And we are to follow the summons of our exalted King Jesus. Not whatever our appetites and temptations are telling us. And Paul says we've been gifted with others to imitate. He says, as I imitate Christ, so you imitate me. And in a secondary way, we follow people who have committed their lives to Jesus. This is implying that we all need one another in this journey of faith. And what a blessing it is to be an intergenerational church where we can show each other what it's like to follow Christ throughout the years. And I want to remind you that Paul is saying here that our citizenship is not ultimately in any earthly country or state or county, but what defines us, friends, what pulls us, what is truly home sweet home is heaven. The writer of Hebrews says, if those early followers of God had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return to those places. But it says, as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. And so Paul says, let the citizenship you have there pull you upward and forward because we're not just 
hearing from a place that defines us. We're hearing from the person who is there. And so Paul says, we await a Savior, one who has resurrected power, resurrection power, and He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His. So that we will no longer struggle. So that we will no longer face sickness and death. I have to tell you maybe a little dark humor, but, but Liz yesterday, as I was walking through my sermon with her, she said, wow, Matthew Perry of Friends died. Are you going to mention Matthew Perry? And I said, well, I don't know how I'm going to fit it in. And she said, uh, well, um, life is nothingness. <laughs> and I said, well, that's such Gen X humor and insight. I don't know if everyone's going to get that, but she's right. Even those who are famous, even those who have achieved so much can die on a dime. This world is not our home. And Paul says, hear your heavenly cry. Listen to Christ. Passionately pursue Him. And friends, if you don't feel like it, then ask Jesus to renew your desire or to give you the desire for the first time. If your belly, if your appetites have become your God, then long for the bread of life and know that it's only Jesus who will satisfy you. Take hold of this magnificent and majestic person because he has taken hold of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of Jesus. We thank you that we do not have to build our lives around merit, our achievements, our successes, the accomplishments of our kids, how our families look, but we are defined by Jesus. And therefore, like Paul, we, we can look at our past and say, Really, it's all behind us. And now we look forward uh, to knowing Him as He has known us. God, I pray that in our pursuit that You would help us to lay aside what encumbers us and pulls us back. I pray, God, that, that You would keep us from turning our bellies and our appetites into God's, but that we would make you our main appetite and hunger. Father, forever, uh, for any of those who are struggling today to believe this, to buy the resurrection, to know that Christ died for them, I pray that you would show them that he's real, that you would show us the meaning of the resurrection, that we need that power now and we need it on the last day when he will transform our lowly bodies to be like him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.